the, the, the Greeks used to believe that, that mankind was thrown into this life with a divine fire. A divine fire burning inside of them. And this divine fire came from the gods. And from its flames burns all of our, our hate, our love, our desire, our passion, our madness, our sadness, and our heartbreak. And Greek philosophers later would say, yeah, this is our sexuality. This is our sexuality. That our sexuality is like a flame that drives us to one another. Now, I personally think the imagery of sexuality as fire gives us a good frame of mind. Because like fire, sex is a force. Sex is a strong force. It's a, it's a force that's hard to control. It's a force that is hard to, to channel. See, sexuality, again, like fire, can be the best of or the most powerful of or even the most dangerous of if not properly handled or understood. So the need, and the reason we would take four weeks, five weeks to really look into this, the need to understand sexuality, especially sexuality as divine fire, is foremost. But again, understanding sexuality is also like trying to understand the pattern of fire. Basically, it's complicated. I don't have to tell anybody in here, single or not, sexually active or not, that sex is complicated. Sexuality is very, very complicated. It's all over the place. See, sex and sexuality is this divine fire where if you think about it, it can be this complicated where at the same time it's weaving pleasure or it can do harm. Sex and sexuality can be this incredible amount of togetherness and then within an instant we can feel alone. Sex, sex and sexuality can bring ecstasy and at the same time it can bring an incredible amount of fear. Sex can wound, yet at the same time sex can excite. And the church, the church, with its teachings for the most part, have done a poor job of communicating with clarity the Bible's position on sex and sexuality. Christians have only complicated the matter. And the greater destruction of the church, in my opinion, is not when it just confuses these topics of sex and sexuality, but when it actually dampens or stomps them out. One author has said, Christianity has struggled and still does to healthily and fully celebrate sexual passion. You see, I wouldn't be shocked at all if you're here Christian or not, if, if this idea of the church's teachings and sexuality has, resonates with you. Again, if you're Christian or not. Maybe it's even this that has pushed you away from Christianity or Christ. You see, I have no idea where you stand regarding the topic of sexuality. I have no idea where at, what you view your own sexuality as. I have no idea how you were raised to think about sex. I have no idea uh, what your birds and the bees talk was like with your, with your mom and dad. If you even had one, I didn't. To, in, in full honesty, the extent of my, my sexual education was uh, an uncle handed me uh, a pornographic magazine at an extremely young age. He just handed it to me. And so I have no idea where any of us come from, but I can't even closely imagine what you might think or believe about sexuality and its relation to God or its relation to faith 
or its relation or in union with spirituality. Again, for me, I was forced, fed by the hands of a very small-town conservative church, uh, the knowledge and the theology that God is a prude, that God is a total prude, that God is a killjoy. Was anybody else raised that way within the church? Cool, it's just me. All right, that's fine. This way. All right, thank you, buddy. Yeah, you honest people here. I love them, one of you. Just joking. But many people come to this understanding that the Bible is this long list of regulations telling us only what not to do with our bodies or what not to do with our passions, simply prohibiting men and women, you and I, from pleasure, so it seems. And all of this making sex a taboo or making sexuality carnal. See, let it be said for the record tonight, that is uh, absolutely not true. My job and hope tonight would be to be able to make the case how sexuality, as complicated as it can be, is not earthly. It is not gross. And it is not sinful. But actually, it's, it is quite spiritual. And because of that, I want us to leave this place tonight with conviction that any safeguards the Bible has on sex is not because the Bible has too low a view of sex or too low a view of sexuality, but the Bible holds the highest view of sex in the entire human realm. I have convic- conviction that, and, and serious belief that the Bible holds the highest view on sex in the entire human realm. And this is a truth that I hope both unchristians come to see who are here tonight, but obviously something Christians believe, that any and all sexual ethics which come from Scripture, began and start with a resounding declaration of it is good. Sex is good. Sexuality is good. Especially 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and chapter 7. These words from Paul, if you guys have it open in front of you, these words from Paul, the missionary, the pastor, the apostle, we've been following for a while now in our study of Acts, His words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, have completely, and hear me on this, revolutionized sexuality for both the married, but also for the single man and single woman. Paul has revolutionized sexuality. And if the church, if we stand upon these revolutionized words and ideas, only then will we have the courage to become a moral force or a counterculture community to challenge and comfort our hyper-sexualized culture our hypersexualized city, Los Angeles. Now, I just kept thinking as I was preparing this, it's, it, I don't know if you know, it's, it, it's not normal, and it might be dumb or crazy for, for churches to talk about sexuality. Um, a lot of pastors, a lot of people try to avoid this, and I'm not saying we're heroes in this, I'm just pointing out how, how crazy we might be, because it's one thing to talk about in the church, but it's another thing to talk about in the church, which is in Los Angeles. Los Angeles, our hyper-sexualized city, place we dwell, known as Los Angeles. Uh, In the book titled Sex, Death, and God in L.A., which isn't a Christian book at all, the opening chapter regarding sex starts with this. It has always seemed to me, ever since I was little, that sex was what was was Los Angeles was, was, was all about. And that the thing to do was inspire lust so mighty, inspire lust so mighty, 
that it would overcome those who might inspire lust in you. Sex is what Los Angeles, our home, is about. And it's our city that influences the entire world. Thus, if the sexual climate of, or the sexual um, currents of our culture have changed, we can easily assume it's because Los Angeles has had a part in it, has had a hand in it. So with that, I want to talk about what is the current climate of sexuality right now in the West, but especially in our own city. What is the current like, sort of temperature of how do we, for the vast like, majority, view sex and sexuality? Well, from my, from my research, what seems to be the most common and agreed upon, understood cultural views of sex are these. And I would encourage you right now as we get into them, see if any of these resonate with you. See if you go, yeah, yeah, I know, I know that one, or I remember that one, or that one's even me. I can identify like that. So this is, this is the first one. That sex is evil. That sex is evil. That sex is a necessary evil. We just kind of got into this with the church. But it is the view, it is the current climate within the West that sex is this nasty, dirty, not heavenly, not godly, holy thing. And if you have to have sex because you want kids, then I guess go ahead and have sex, but like, you know, keep the lights off or whatever it is. Like, abstain from sex as much as possible. It is a necessary evil. The second cultural view of sex would be this. Uh, that sex is an expression. Excuse me. Sex is an, an expression self-expression. And then we're going to get way more into that next week. But it means that sex is the way I discover who I am. Sex is the way I discover myself. Essentially, it's every episode of Girls or Sex in the City that you could possibly watch. That's self as an expression. They figure out who they are by who they're having sex with, by how many times they have sex. So sex is a method of where you and I find out and identify ourselves. And lastly, let's allow Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to reveal this one to us. Let's read in verse 12. Paul says to the church in Corinth, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Well, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but the Lord and the Lord for the body. Did you guys see it? The third and final, what is agreed upon cultural view of sexuality. The third way I would say is sex is like eating. So there's evil, there's expression, and there's eating. That sex is merely a hunger pain. Sex is a hunger pain that we just feed it. To those in Corinth, and, and notice how Paul uses the quotes in these verses. He's literally quoting them. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. He's having this conversation back and forth in his letter, which he's returning to them. So to them, just as food was meant for the stomach, what they basically say is, so sex is for the body. It's the same thing. Food for the stomach, sex for the body. The stomach is useless unless we eat. Our bodies are useless unless we have sex, is their belief. This is what they've come to understand. Now, even though this was hundreds and hundreds of years ago, does it sound like much has changed? Does it sound like much has changed for our circles of life, for the people we run with, for the people we walk with? 
right? To not feed this hunger, this appetite, this hunger pain called sex is to then repress our body's deepest desires and needs. And that right there has got to be the biggest no-no in our overly sexualized culture, Los Angeles, our city. It is a huge no-no to repress or to say no to our sexual appetite. L.A. believes that repression leads to depression. To depress ourselves is, is to repress ourselves is to depress ourselves, right? See, 2017, whatever, stands on the premise that who we, who we are or who we try to be or what we try to do means to never deny anything from ourselves, especially if it feels good. Do not deny anything from me if it feels good. Do not deny anything from me if it doesn't even bother you. Don't deny me love. Don't deny my friend's requests. Don't deny my marriage. Don't deny my speech. Don't deny my identity. Do not deny me sex. The body needs feeding. To, to, to the vast majority, sex is the nourishment. Now, all this arrives from the Greek understanding that the Corinthians believe that, that being, that, being that, that, that the body does not matter. It's this understanding that our bodies, your body, does not matter. And sex can be very, very dangerous when one person, a party, enters a sexual relationship and they believe that their body does not matter. It is a very dangerous situation. Now, maybe there are some here tonight who believe that your body doesn't matter. Maybe you like the Corinthians who believe bodies were like husks of corn. They had to be shed. They needed to be taken off. Or that these bones are like shells or that our souls were trapped in meat. That the spirit is everything and the body is nothing. But hearing all that, and that's what the Greeks would believe and the Corinthians were clearly believing, hearing that, would you say that's true for us today? I wouldn't. I would wager that L.A. believes the polar opposite. See, to the Corinthians, the spirit is everything. To the Californian, no, 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 the body, the physical is everything. The Corinthians say, give away your body because it's nothing, so don't deny me sex. The Angelina would say, idolize your body because it's everything, do not deny me sex. The Corinthians say, who cares about the body? The Angelinos go, we do. And truthfully, I, I believe we can see both sides. We can see both sides. I don't know, maybe, maybe you can't. I can't. See, yes to the soul and yes to the body. Thus, yes to the soul, yes to the body, we need a proper union of these two distinctives. We need a meaningful vision of sexuality. And friends, here tonight, that's what Christianity gives. A meaningful union between the soul and the body. It brings balance to the force. Here's what Karl Barth said, old school theologian, super, extremely influential. He's basically saying what Paul says when he goes that we are embodied souls and insouled bodies. And because of that, Christianity doesn't repress sexuality, but liberates it. So with that, let's spend the rest of our time together exploring the Christian vision of sexuality. And I first want to start with a healthy comprehension of the body. 
So look at verse 15. A healthy comprehension of the body, or what John Merrick calls a wonderland, right? That's what I should have titled this thing, a wonderland. Verse 15. And Paul's going off. He goes, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall, I take, shall then I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin, is a, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, please don't be distracted by the whole prostitution thing. Back in the day, every single adult was basically married. If you were not married, you were a prostitute. More on that in coming weeks. But essentially, don't let that throw you off here. The Corinthians believed that their bodies were useless. Useless. And sex was only an appetite. So if Christian husbands had any sexual urge at all, rather than going to their spouse, they would then go to a brothel. It doesn't matter. That was their belief. But what Paul is saying here, he's telling these Corinthian Christians, wake up. Saying, wake up. The spirit matters and so does your body. I want us to see that Christianity is considered to be the most body positive religion in the world. I'll repeat that. Christianity is considered to be the most body positive religion in all of history, in all of mankind. Christianity, we have a very, very physical faith system. It's very, very physical. God made the physical world and declared its goodness time and time again. If you think about Christ, Christ here on earth, the incarnation, the sacrifice of his body, the resurrection of his body, and so on and so forth, all of that revealing to us that the physical, our bodies, is significant. Our bodies are significant. Even that there are very real consequences and stakes with the way we use this thing called our body. There's stakes. What Paul is saying here forever changes the nature of sex. What he's saying right now and what he's getting into changes forever the nature of sex. See, Christians, Paul's pointing out, again, not the moral issue of prostitution, but rather highlighting the impact of sexuality on our embodied selves. He's highlighting the impact that your sex, my sex, can have. He does this by making the believers realize that our bodies are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. We've heard this probably a million times if you're raised in the church or whatever. Temple of the Holy Spirit, temple of the Holy Spirit, God's in my heart, whatever. Paul is trying to get people to realize in such a way, and this is, this is pretty graphic. I want us to see this is so intense that our bodies have such stakes to them that Christ is also affected by sexual immorality. Did you get that? Look at verse 15. This is so intense. He goes, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. This again, this is so graphic. It's basically saying it's you are as if you are putting Jesus with a prostitute together sexually. This is heavy, heavy stuff Paul is getting into. The doctrine of the Christian faith would teach us that union with Christ, that our bodies are joined to the Lord in this life and in the life to come, just as our souls are. 
Therefore, our physical, our bodies, our good, they are good, but they do have spiritual ramifications, either for good or bad. Our bodies have spiritual ramifications. This is why the belief and behavior of biblical sexual ethics is critical. The belief and behavior of biblical sexual ethics is absolutely critical because sex in its design goes far beyond just what you and I may do with our genitals. I hope we get that tonight. Sex is far more than just genitals. Sex is more than just orgasms. Sex is more than mere seconds of pleasure. And if we ever reduce biblical sexuality to just the act of sex, we've missed entirely the deeper essence of its purpose. And here's where people sort of kind of go askew as we start entering this realm with the vision or the Christian vision of sex and sexuality. This is where things go askew for most people. Right here when we start crossing this bound where we say sex is just more than the actual act. This is where people get weird. Um, some of you may be familiar with the name Joshua Bell. Does anybody know Joshua Bell? Two of you? Cool. All right. It means I can embellish. That's good. I like when only nobody knows the stories. It's good. But Joshua Bell some time ago walked onto, and maybe you guys, this is a very famous story, but Joshua Bell walked onto a subway system in Washington, D.C. He opened his violin case, and he started to play music. He started to play music. And his day's wages that day, as he opened his violin case and threw a couple bucks, and his day's wages was a whopping 32 bucks. 32 bucks for the entire time he was there. You see, this is significant. This is significant because nobody stopped to really listen. He would tell the story later, and he goes, nobody stopped to listen other than a child. One child stopped, and then his arm was you know, pulled away by the mother. But nobody stopped to consider who was playing. Nobody stopped to hear the songs. Nobody stopped to realize that this person in the subway system playing the violin is Joshua Bell. Bell, who's considered to be the living, one of the most living legends we have with classical music. Nobody even realized in the subway station that Joshua Bell was playing a $3 million violin. Yeah. So Joshua Bell a short time earlier, sold out the Boston Symphony Hall for $100 a seat. That was only some time earlier before he did this in the subway. And in the symphony hall, as in the same way in the subway, he played the same chords, the same technicals, the same music, the same songs. The difference was nobody slowed down to listen or notice or hear these heavenly songs. I believe this can be the same realization for the Christian vision of sexuality. Same realization. Where many people want to rant against it and say that the Christian vision of sexuality is dull, no frills, buzzkill, old-fashioned, domestic, conservative sex. That's what everybody wants to say the church is. I would encourage us to listen and to pause and hear these thoughts just like those people should have stopped in the subway and hear those heavenly songs that day. So tonight, and for the next couple of weeks, I would just encourage us as I present, or as we present, or as we talk about this in our discipleship groups, to really listen. Really listen to these, these heavenly songs here. 
Listen to a tune that I, I would say, people would say is mundane. The, the subway songs are mundane when in all actuality they're otherworldly. They're absolutely divine. The Christian vision of sexuality and sex is divine. And this comes alive in verse 16. This comes alive in verse 16. I would say when we understand the, the, the beautifulness of sex, the wonder of sex, when we understand two words Paul is talking about here. Look at verse 16. Paul says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. One flesh. I would say that the divine understanding of the Christian vision for sexuality is in these two words, one flesh. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, these words should sound familiar. They're from the first two chapters of Genesis. Remember, if you're ever reading the first two chapters of Genesis or somebody like Jesus and Paul point back to the first two chapters of Genesis, what they're pointing to is God's divine intention. They point back to go, Genesis chapter 2 or this or that. They're basically saying the way it should be, the design for mankind. And Genesis chapter 3 onward shows us the distortion of what was originally created in 1 and 2. So what we see again from the rest of scriptures, Jesus and Paul and others, pointing back to these two chapters. And here, both Paul and Jesus use the words one flesh when talking about marriage and sexuality. So when we hear one flesh, we kind of have to go down the middle here in understanding meaning, meaning it's this poetic, like metaphorical imagery, while at the same time, kind of some literal sense to it. Now, that doesn't mean one flesh, tissue, body, bones, blood, like Jeff Goldblum, the fly, sort of like mutation type thing. That's not what it's talking about, okay? But the act of sex does blur two bodies. The act of, of sex does blur two bodies where you cannot tell where one body begins and the other body ends, thus resulting as if they are one flesh. One flesh here is talking about transformation. It's talking about this understanding of bonding to individuals, but not just physically. It's talking about the bonding of personhood. One flesh here means whole personhood. Whole personhood, a bonding of two individuals, or two individuals who are already, hear me, this is important, <coughs> excuse me, or two individuals are already bound in everlasting commitment emotionally, spiritually, mentally, financially, purposefully, then they can physically and sexually bound and bind as well. Is everybody getting this? Two people who are fully bound, whole person, continued, <coughs> excuse me, committed to one another, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, financially, and purposefully, from that will they be able to be bound physically. You see, sex is the full visual expression of lives in whole commitment, and then bodies become whole. Obviously, when you hear these type of things, and as we sort of unpack this a little more, when you hear these kind of things, it makes sense why adultery when spoken of in the New Testament, is so devastating. Extremely devastating. This is why sex inside of commitment is the best form of sex there is. Sex inside of commitment is the best form of sex there is. 
So people who say that God is a killjoy when it comes to sex have no idea what they're talking about. They have no idea what they're talking about. God knows as the designer of sex how we can have the best sex there is to have. And that happens when not just bodies are shared and naked and open, but whole lives are shared naked and open. That, God says, makes for fulfilling sex. That's what God says, good sex. When whole lives are shared naked, vulnerable, and open. Not just our bodies. Where one committed person gives of themselves completely and the other committed person receives completely. Now, obviously, I get this room is made up of tons of single peoples. Uh, We have more single people, I believe, in our church than we do married people. So I would just say, don't worry, single people. We'll be talking about what it means to be single and sexuality this entire time. But if I, for the next few moments, can just address the married couple or maybe those who are engaged, and I would encourage single people to listen as well, but I would really love I would love for covenant committed couples to see sex, to see their sex life as as a sacrament. Now that's really, really fancy language. Basically what I'm saying is see your sex life as sacred. See your sex life as sacred. I want married couples here to view their sex life as a recommitting of vows, to see sex as an expression of what you are together in life to see sex as taking part in creation. Again, I was just thinking, we just talked about this when we did Sanctity of Human Life, that a DNA strand comes out of nowhere and that's only possible in the powerful force that is sex. Nowhere else in the entire human realm does a DNA DNA strand just pop out of nowhere, but within sex, within sex, the powerful force of sex, it's as part of creation. I want us married couples to see sex as service, as sacrifice, as pleasure, joy, total giving, total trust, full commitment, all in a single act. So that any words here from Paul or any frustrations about sex that people may have, the Bible's got so many prohibitions and rules on sex. I would love those prohibitions to be seen and known as protection protection. Not prohibition, but protection. Because our body and the act of sex, because our heart and the nature of sexuality is one of the most mysterious and powerful forces of all time. And power must be protected, right? Nobody's tweeting nuclear codes, right? Power must be protected. See, like fire, it's like fire is like outrageously powerful. This divine fire should be held as sacred, protected, respected. Priest Ronald Rollheiser says this. He says, sex is not just like anything else. Despite our culture's protest, its fire is so powerful, so precious so close to the heart and soul of a person and so godly that it either gives life or takes it away. It can never be casual. It can never be casual. One more time, it can never be casual, but it is either a sacrament or a destructive act. 
it is quite challenging Christians to pursue holiness in this life and believe at the same time that sex can be casual. It is quite destructive to pursue holiness or relationship with Christ and believe that sex is just lighthearted or even meaningless. Paul addresses those very things, casual, meaningless, lighthearted sex, and he addresses all those beliefs and behaviors about that sort of sexuality, and he says this. Paul says, flee. All that stuff that we may view sex as, Paul says, flee. You guys remember that part in Stranger Things where like run popped up in the Christmas lights? That's what Paul's doing, but it's like flee, F-L-E-E. And everybody's like hair on their arms stood up, like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Paul basically says flee any sexuality that goes beyond Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Anything that is beyond sex between a husband and a wife, Paul says flee. Flee from any sexual, any form of sexual dis- distortion. But I want us to see this. But Paul says, don't you dare flee. Don't you dare flee sexual morality to earn Christ's approval. That's not Paul's case here. Flee because you already have the dwelling place of God. Look at this. Look at verse 19. Paul has to poke and prod the Corinthians to wake up to this. Look at verse 19. Or do you not know? Do you not know this, that your body, and this comes after fleeing all that stuff, everything he's saying, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Do you not know this? Do you not get this? Even though we only have a foretaste of this now, what this reduces sexuality to, or at least what I want us to understand, actually, I'd love to see this as redeemed sexuality, as faint as it may be, is that the pleasure of being loved and accepted who we are in this body, ultimately, warts and all, broken sexual past and all, who we are fully and ultimately accepted. That the acceptance we are to have in committed covenantal sex with our spouse is only a shadow of the fullest love and acceptance that we all, married or not, receive in Christ. See, I want us to see I love that, that, to understand that sex, which is the most vulnerable undertaking in the human realm, where the deepest form of acceptance happens is, the, is, is an expression of God to his people. Sex is the most vulnerable undertaking in the human realm where the deepest form of acceptance happens. And so sex is this expression of God to his people. Now, I remember thinking back in the day that anybody who made a correlation between sex and sexuality and a relationship with God was gross. But I would encourage you to deepen and understand true sexuality. I want us to not have a shallow understanding of this. Because when a husband and a wife have sex, it expresses something essential about God. That even in our distortions, our sexuality, broken bodies, which is true of all of us, we're all sexually broken, Christ still says, I'm here. That even in those distortions or sexual morality, Christ still says, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. This is my dwelling place. Have you not heard? This is my dwelling place. Christ is saying, I've purchased you, my body, for your body. 
And again, isn't that what communion's all about? Communion is the most, it has been told, you know, and spoken of a lot as, as a thing of remembrance, which is beautiful and right, but it's also an act of accepting him as he has accepted us. It is a partaking. It's a rhythm of saying, I have been purchased, and it's a rhythm of saying every week when we gather together, I am not my own. I have surrendered the rights to my body. Someone wants me. Someone has given his body up for me. Look at verse 19 again. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. So tonight when we sing or when we respond and we take these double stack cups, we're partaking of these symbols, the bread and the cup, we're partaking, which, which states publicly that you accept as you walk up here, that you accept that you are not your own. Every time we take communion, it's acceptance basically saying, I have been purchased. That you as a living house, a temple, is where God dwells. Now I'm going to try to land this plane for the sake of time. By having us see, by having us know that what we believe and practice as Christians in regards to our sexuality actually has a lot to say about what we believe about God himself. So whatever you believe about sex and sexuality, however you behave with sex and sexuality, says a lot about who you are in relations to God. See, everyone is sitting here, everybody's sitting here, me included. We are all sexual beings. Every single one of us. It's part of our makeup. And we are experts within our own sexuality. And with that, again, how we believe and how we behave with our sexuality influences, because it is a massive part of us, influences so much of this life. So how you view your sexuality or how I view my sexuality influences the way I view other people's sexuality. How you view your sexuality or how you view mine influences the way we hear biblical talks on sexuality. It, it, it influences the way we engage in social media. It influences the way we respond when people have differing views. It influences the way we interpret the Bible. It influences ultimately, though, what we believe about God. Meaning, I'll totally give Jesus my heart. But Jesus cannot have my body. I'll let Christ have dominion over my career or my, my grades or my choices, or my friends. But Christ cannot come near the darkest corners of my life. And sexuality has the darkest corners within us. See, sexuality is so intimate to us that we cling to every detail. We cling to every detail about it. It's challenging enough to let people near, in, you know, near to us Intimately and physically. That's challenging enough. It's a whole other thing to let someone be the authority over our physical. And believing that, that we are masters of our domain or we are captains of our own, of our own bodies and of our own soul, it's because of that, because our physicality and our sexuality is so near and dear, we have to control it. It's because of that that Paul says, no, you're not your own. That part right there, you are not your own. Because when God moves in, he rebuilds. 
author C.S. Lewis, who I believe we probably all know, he says this about being temples of the Holy Spirit. I love this quote, but apply this right now to really understanding our sexuality, our sex, our understanding of sex. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopped the leaks in the roof and so on. You, knew that, you know that, that those jobs needed, uh, needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seek to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one he thought of. Throwing out, you know, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. So regarding our sexuality, whatever room your sexual brokenness may be in, whatever basement stores past impurities or present impurities, whatever closet all these fears may lie in, whatever hall or wing your addictions or problems or shame reside in, any past secret or present circumstance that you are hiding from God like Adam and Eve in the garden, tonight, in this moment, God as the builder of the house, the one who owns the deed to our body, to this living house, stands at the door and knocks. He stands at the door and knocks and says, the most intimate part about you, the part you let nobody else in, he is standing at that door and knocking. My hope would be that tonight you answer it. You would answer it tonight. So let's pray. But I would say this, after this, we're going to respond. This would be a beautiful time to go and receive prayer. There's going to be two people on that back wall and two people on that back wall. They're wearing yellow lanyards. I so, so encourage you to go and receive prayer. Sexuality, sexual brokenness, this stuff is real. And do not go through it alone. Do not go through it alone. So tonight, go and receive prayer from these incredible people who are part of our community. There's going to be a bunch of people walking around. Please make that a point tonight as you come up for communion or sing. So let's pray.